Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Vince Gregoric. I'm the editor of Cleveland Scene. And it really is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, uh, my dear pal, uh, former colleague, former scene reporter, uh, and the author of Good Kids, Bad City, a story of race and wrongful conviction in America, Kyle Swenson. In 2011, uh, Kyle was a reporter at Cleveland Scene when he wrote a story chronicling the questionable imprisonment of three African-American men following a robbery and murder in the 1970s. His reporting shined a light on a case that many had forgotten and caused the one witness whose testimony put the three men in prison for a collective 106 years to recant his story. Three years later, with the help of the Ohio Innocence Project, all three men, Wiley, Kwame, and Ricky, were exonerated. Mr. Swenson explores these wrongful convictions, the path to exoneration, the racial history and racial politics of Cleveland and its police department, and the systemic problems plaguing the criminal justice system in his new book. Uh, while Cl uh, Kyle is a Cleveland native, he is now a reporter with the Washington Post. Over the course of his career, he has received uh, several national awards, including the Society of Professional Journalists Sigma Delta Chi Award for feature reporting, and the Salute to Excellence Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature from Kenyon College. Uh, joining Mr. Swenson on stage is WKYC reporter Raymond Strickland, a Northeast Ohio native. Uh, Mr. Strickland returned to Cleveland last year after reporting stints in St. Louis, Missouri, and Bismarck, North Dakota. He holds a bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from Kent State University. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Kyle Swenson and Raymond Strickland. And Vince, I have to tell you, the, the snow in Bismarck, North Dakota is nothing uh, compared to, to Ohio. Actually, that's actually the complete opposite. Bismarck, North Dakota was, was crazy. Um, but Kyle, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure. Um, two things, I'm jealous of you and I'm also thankful of you. Uh, I'm jealous of you because uh, I'm a reporter, obviously, and when you were working at the Cleveland scene, uh, you got a tip essentially that Kwame Asamo, he wanted to speak with you. Uh, he had a, a story to tell. Um, and, and boy, did he, did he have a story to tell. But I'm jealous of you because those stories don't just fall <laughs> on your desk every day. Um, I wish they did, Absolutely. but trust me, it's not that easy. No. <laughs> um, but So that's why I'm jealous, because I, I, I really wish a story like that would fall on my desk. So if anyone's out, if anyone out there, <laughs> if, uh, if you have a story to tell, I, 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 you can definitely email me. Uh, but I'm also thankful because you pursued the story um, and you believed Kwame. And I know a lot of times, as a reporter, we get these stories, people in jail who believe they were, or they would assume, or I should say they would allege that they were wrongfully accused or wrongfully convicted. And of course, it ends up being, it being the opposite. They were actually guilty of it. Kwame, of course, was not that case. Mm -hmm. And also Wiley Brisman and Ricky Jackson. 
But I want to talk to you about that conversation with Kwame, that original meeting. How did that come about? Um, because you talked about in your book, book that he did not, he was not impressed with you, I should say, <laughs> uh, right? You know, no, you, you were 25 at the time, 2011. Right. Um, so yeah, go into that meeting if you can. Uh, well, Kwame was here with his wife, LaShawn. Uh, they, uh, well, I should say Kwame loves to tell the story about how unimpressed he was with me <laughs> when he first saw me, <laughs> which I think was pretty fair. I mean, I, it was 2011, like you said, I was 25. I'd been at Cleveland Scene for probably maybe less than a year. I'd been in journalism just for a couple years, uh, so I was very green. Uh, and I had definitely never tackled something as involved as the reporting that would go into this story. Uh, but I remember I got a tip from Terry Gilbert, uh, who's an attorney in Cleveland, who I'm sure a lot of you know. He I've had, yeah, he's a, he's a great uh, advocate for, for justice in Cleveland. And he had reached out to me. I'd known him from some other stories, and he said he had talked to this guy who had this, this wild story about a murder in 1975 that he said he didn't commit. And Terry said, you know, I don't have really the resources to look into this case at this time, but, you know, a reporter could do a good job with this. Would you be willing to meet with him? And I remember Terry said, I think it would probably take a lot of work, but, you know, there might be something there, which was quite, quite accurate. Uh, but he, uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to, love to talk with him. And almost like immediately, I think Kwame called me, like within 10 minutes of hitting that email to Terry, and, and said he wanted to meet, and we met at the Starbucks on West 9th, which was kind of like our spot. It's where we would always uh, meet in the intervening months. But when I sat down, uh, Kwame told me that 1975, he, his brother, and his best friend had all been convicted of a murder of a white money order salesman on the east side, right around the corner from where they were living on, an, on a street called Arthur Avenue. And what he said was that the only evidence that was brought to trial against these men was the testimony of a 12-year-old boy. There was no physical evidence, no smoking gun, no uh, money that had been taken from the victim. Nothing linked these men, these young men, to this crime except for this boy's testimony. And he asked me to look into the case. And I, I immediately said yes. You know, I definitely had been on the receiving end of a lot of tips where people mm -hmm. had said that they hadn't done something and then I would investigate it and find out that it wasn't exactly as clear cut as I thought. Guilt or innocence wasn't uh, as black and white. It was much more of a gray issue. But something about Kwame, the way he told his story, I remember he wasn't, he didn't seem very emphatic that I believed him. He was just basically telling me the story of his life and I could believe it or not, but this is what happened. And at that point, he's probably told the story a million times and no one believed him. More than likely, right? I think that would be the case, is that people hadn't. And, you know, the other thing, if you ever deal with a reporter, he had this big box of documents, and that makes reporters, like, you know, makes your heart <laughs> he did all the work. Bit. Yeah, <laughs> so he had this box of documents, so I knew that there was something there, and what it actually was was his trial transcript, about probably 1,100 pages of a play-by-play -play of his trial, and that was really the first piece. And that first story, it was really a collaboration between us. Uh, we would sit, we would talk, we would meet over a six-month period. We would talk about names of people from the old neighborhood. He would mention somebody. I would reach out to them, or I would discover a name and ask him about, you know, if he could track down some contact information. So it was very much a collaboration in that first story. Um, but like I said, I, was, I think one of the things that helped was that I was young. I was much greener. I probably wasn't as jaded as, as I would possibly become as a later reporter mm -hmm. in life. But also, uh, to Kwame's great credit, he was very much, um, you know, he, he, he was the engine behind that story. And, you know, his, his, his conviction and his, 
uh, passion about it really was what helped push me along. So it was in 1975, right? Yes. When Kwame Asamo, Wiley Bridgman, and Ricky Jackson were accused of robbing and killing a money order salesman named Harry Franks. Yes. Right? Yes. Outside of a, a, a convenience store. Yeah, it was a little corner store. So it's on, uh, now it would be Stokes Boulevard, but at the time it was called Fair Hill Boulevard. Uh, it's right kind of by Cleveland Clinic where the road kind of curves up into the heights there. Uh, and it was really, uh, you know, it was a corner store that's not there anymore, but it was really a small time robbery. Uh, cash was stolen from the guy, his, his satchel was taken. He was attacked, doused with acid, and then fatally shot. And they said Ricky pulled the, the trigger, right? And Wiley drove the getaway car. Getaway car, and Kwame, who at the time his name was Ronnie Bridgman, mm -hmm. was one of the other attackers with Ricky. And so this, this, this story, or, or I should say, uh, their conviction was solely based on the, the, the admission, or I should say the, the, the testimony of 12-year-old Edward Vernon. And these three young men at the time, like t 20, 19, and 17? 17, 18, and 21. 17, 18, and 21. They weren't even in the vicinity. Uh, I shouldn't say in the vicinity, but because they, they lived in the neighborhood. But they weren't in the area at the time when Mr. Franks was killed. No, they were nowhere nowhere near. And in Edward's story, the first, the first investigative story I did, it looked at his testimony throughout the three trials, because there were three separate trials, and there was actually a fourth trial. In 1977, there was a retrial for Wiley's case. And if you looked at Edward's testimony in each of these cases, each of these four uh, trials, it was all over the place. S details were different. Uh, some of the stuff he had testified to was physically impossible. It was very clear that this boy's story was, it just didn't add up when you looked at it as a totality. Yeah, because I, I remember reading in the book, you said that um, Edward said his story was something like uh, he had just, he got out of school early. Uh, he, he took a city bus and he saw his three neighbors mm -hmm. uh, in the car driving beside them as the bus was turning. Right. But as you two met, you you, you met in the area of, of where the, the, the alleged crime happened, right? Yeah. And you saw that. You saw what? What, did, well, what did you see? So, yeah, Edward had testified that he had left school early that day and taken a city bus alone home. And then he was on the city bus and it was turning onto Fairhill with Stokes now, taking a left-hand turn, and he said that the bus turned alongside a car on its left, which was being driven by Wiley Bridgman, and Ronnie Bridgman and, and Ricky Jackson were in the car. The car and bus turned together, and then later as he got off the bus, he saw the crime, them attacking them and driving off. Well, in the course pretty early when Kwame and I were working on this, we met at the site of this, uh, this corner where this murder had happened. This, like I said, the store wasn't there. It was just basically an empty, weedy lot now. And I remember he, it was like March. It was like really cold. We were just standing there. And Kwame was like, you got to wait and see this. You got to see this. And I was like, all right. You know, it's cold, but OK, <laughs> I'm waiting. Uh, and then I saw, and he's like, look, look, there. And he, it was a bus, had, a city bus had stopped at the light and was making the turn. And I realized as it turned that there was only one left-hand <laughs> turn lane. There was no other lane for a car to be turning alongside the bus. So what Edward had testified to was physically impossible. There was no way a car could have done that. It would have gone into traffic or hit some other car. It was just impossible. And so that was really when a light bulb kind of went off in my head that these guys, that this story was very much true. And like I said, I believed uh, Kwame when we first met, but that was really a moment when I, it kind of energized my efforts because I was like, this is actually, this is real, 
real life stuff is absolutely true. And um, you know, that was a really pivotal moment. How in the world did police, prosecutors, investigators, how did they miss those inconsistencies in Edward Vernon's story? Were there any other suspects? I mean, um, because no evidence pointed towards those three. No, and uh, eventually another kind of great moment was I got a hold of the homicide file from the city of Cleveland. And that, you know, was a very much day-by-day -day play book of the investigation and who investigators were talking to. And there were very clearly other suspects. In fact, like good suspects, like people who had criminal records, who had done stick-ups back in the day like this. In the neighborhood, they used to call guys like this pistoleros. They were like stick-up men. Yeah. But uh, including on the day the crime happened, the FBI field office in Cleveland called up the homicide department and said, you know, I have a, we have a tip that it was these two guys who did this crime, this, this stick-up. It was a, a pair of brothers named Railroad and Skip King uh, <laughs> were their nicknames. Uh, and they were kind of notorious in the neighborhood, and the FBI said that they were, their sources said it was these guys, and the detectives completely ignored that. And, you know, you said how could the police and prosecutors ignore that, and I think the answer is that they wanted to ignore all that. Yeah, because I was going to mention, too, when Edward Vernon uh, picked, you know, some of the possible suspects out in a lineup, uh, he failed to pick Kwame Osamu and the other two, right? Well, it was, uh, it was Ricky and Wiley who were oh, in okay. the lineup, and Edward was shown them in the lineup, and there were a few other suspects in the lineup who, who the police felt might have been involved, and he didn't pick up anybody out of the lineup, and, well, that's obviously because we know today because he wasn't there at the time, so he didn't see the crime. That is amazing. So police also pressured him as well, right, kind of coerced him into lying and, and saying that these three men were the suspects and did kill Mr. Franks. And they also even threatened his parents. Yes. Right? So when, when Edward finally uh, recanted his testimony in 2014, he said that, in fact, he had been threatened by the police after that lineup. You know, he had volunteered information, trying to be helpful. The police had taken him along. They brought him to the lineup. And he figured in his mind that he just wouldn't pick anybody out and nothing would happen. Instead, he doesn't pick anybody else out. And according to Edward, he was taken in a back room. Uh, a detective started slamming the table. And again, this is a 12-year-old uh, boy. Starts slamming the table, says he's going to arrest his parents for perjury. Uh, terrifies this little kid, in fact, into then sitting down and writing a statement uh, pointing the finger at, at these three young men. Wow, so they ended up spending a combined 106 years in prison, right? Yes. Um, Ronnie, I mean, not Ronnie, um, was it Wiley was, was the one who spent 39 years in prison, or was that Ricky? Ricky Jackson spent Ricky, 39. Because he was the alleged shooter, so he right. had the most time. So he spent 39 years in prison, which was, at that time, um, the longest wrongful imprisonment, um, or in 2014 when he got out, was the, at the time the longful the longest wrongful imprisonment. Right, and but when you take it into the totality of the years served and the years lost, really, wow. uh, f that these men lost, the 106, I, I we, you know, as far as we know, that's the longest wrongful conviction to end an exoneration in U.S. history, which is, of course, a shameful um, statistic to have tied to your city. So when you were investigating the case, uh, uh, um, outside of Edward Vernon's um, uh, uh, testimony and, and, and the fact that he lied. What else did you find throughout the course of the investigation as far as just police misconduct, other missteps, uh, just looking the other way, turning the other cheek? 
when when the actual suspects and evidence pointing in the other direction was kind of staring you right in the face? Well, in those early days, Kwame and I found uh, friends from the old neighborhood that were with uh, actually Ricky and Kwame at the time of the crime, alibi witnesses. And then we also found uh, a gentleman who had witnessed the crime, who knew the guys from the neighborhood, had been riding his bike, saw the crime happen, knew those guys, and knew it wasn't them committing the crime. So, but you talked to these guys almost 40 years after it happened. Yes. Yeah. And they always had this information. They did, and that was really, that was quite a sticking point to me about something I needed to kind of understand, was that at the time, these people were terrified to come forward. They, they felt that they couldn't come forward, and that's why I realized that this story is a way of looking into the racial dynamics of Cleveland, at, particularly at that time, but also today, because I don't think that they've improved mar all that much. But in particular, what would kind of, you know, create this fear in a community, particularly the black community, about the police department? Like, why was that there? And so that led me down um, a lot of research and a lot of reporting that ended up in the book about those dynamics. Yeah, because I know you, you talked about in your book the, the Huff uh, riots and the, and the Glenville shooting and the racial tension uh, in 1975 that kind of contributed to some of uh, the discrimination and racism against the, the three men because clearly you, you, they, they, like you said, they wanted to prosecute these men. And I think you also talked about in the book, the prosecutor at the time really just wanted to shove cases through the system and not really give them the due diligence. So can you talk a little bit about uh, that as well, just as far as um, how race played a factor in their conviction? Yeah, I mean, it played an, an incredible factor and it played a huge factor in the, the history of the city of Cleveland, particularly in those years leading up to this. So like you mentioned, you have the Huff riots and then you also have the election of Carl Stokes uh, as mayor of Cleveland, which was really a, a, a wonderful moment in the civil rights movement because it was the, he was the first African-American man to be elected uh, mayor of a major American city. Yeah. So it was kind of this hallmark moment. He's kind of a forgotten figure now, I think, in, in the history of the civil rights movement, unfortunately. But Stokes had an agenda of cleaning up the police department. He, he had grown up in Cleveland as a black man. He knew what it was like being a black man in Cleveland, and he knew that there were problems with the police. So he had tried and mounted a very vigorous campaign to clean up the police department in the late 60s. Uh, he'd been fought every single which way trying to clean up the police department. His actions were very much stymied, but it created tension. And then you had the Glenville shootout, which, in fact, uh, in the book, but uh, Kwame grew up next door to where the Glenville shootout happened and actually was there that day and saw that. And it was this moment when a group of black militants opened fire on a group of Cleveland police officers. And it was incredibly, incredibly significant nationally because this is before the Black Panthers were kind of a, uh, a national group really or, or, or everyone, it was before the Black Panthers had mainstream recognition really. But here was this moment of actual guerrilla fighting in an American street based along lines of race. And it was a terrifying moment to the white establishment across the country. It was a new kind of moment in, this, in the civil rights era. So that really electrified tensions between the black community and the police, particular in Cleveland. And I think all that fed into what these men dealt with when they were arrested. And again, arrested, and they had to spend again the, you, the number is just, is, is really mind-blowing when you say it, 106 years combined in prison, 39, like you said, for Ricky. Um, so uh, 
can, can you talk about uh, if, if you if if you if you had these I'm sure you did have these conversations with Kwame just about what it was like inside for them um, and of course he changed his name um, as well from from Ronnie so can you also talk talk about the reason why he did that too well uh, you know what we haven't pointed out, which I think is really important, okay. is that these guys were sent to death row. I mean, they oh, yeah, were they were they were sentenced to death point. for this yeah. crime, uh, which is very very significant. Uh, so they were sent to death row, which you can imagine is a terrible experience for anyone. They were sent to Lucasville. Uh, they were sentenced to death by electrocution, and basically, you're waiting in death row along with a range full of other people waiting for your execution date, but at the same time what was playing out in courts across the country, in particular the Supreme Court, was this very involved battle to, to end capital punishment. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that in the mid-70s there were actually a, a number of landmark rulings that that's, uh, overturned capital punishment statutes in various states. And you know, Kwame would tell me and, and Ricky and, and Wiley had talked to me about being on death row, kind of listening to the radio, waiting for news about Supreme Court decisions that would impact their cases. And finally, in 1978, the Supreme Court, in a case called Lockett, uh, Sandra Lockett case, overturned Ohio's death penalty statute, which converted all of their convictions to life in prison. Um, but if you can imagine, I mean, just the stress and, um, you know, I try to describe it as best as I can from, from these men's point of view of what they went through. Uh, is is completely um, you know it's more than than most people can think to endure, and I think though I, I will say this though after they released the general population Kwame in particular Ricky Wiley they all um, salvaged their minds and their spirit and their integrity I think by living Kwame one, I remember told me that when he realized he was in prison he was going to make the best out of it that he could and so he did education courses he was involved in the administration of the prison. He helped other people get their education. He did cooking classes, if I remember correctly. He, he always boasts about his prison cooking that he could do, that he, he was an uh, expert at. So, you know, whatever, what I think is most remarkable about these three men and what, what's really been a great example to me is about how they salvaged so much of who they are uh, from what was taken. You know, they, they lived incredible lives in spite of this great injustice that was done to them. And I know too when whenever they would uh, you know have a hearing or, or like for a par like for parole or to, to get out early, um, to some degree they would have to um, admit what they did and express remorse for what they did. But um, every time it's like I didn't do it, so right. I, ca I can't. So they would get a couple more years tacked on or something like that. Right. Did, can you talk about how do you? Uh, be in prison for that long. Can you, can you, from the, at least from their perspective, be in prison for that long, knowing that you didn't do it, and you're telling other prisoners, "I didn't do it." They don't believe you. Well, I mean, that's true. They don't believe him. <laughs> in fact, Kwame and I, when we were on the radio on Mike McIntyre's show the other day, uh, a, a former a guy who Kwame had been in with called into the show and said, "I remember you. You were a great guy." inside but you know I remember you saying that you didn't do it and I never believed you because everyone says that but uh, <laughs> you know but uh, you know they uh, something else that's really important about this is that these guys were sucked into the criminal justice system at, at a moment when it was really changing I mean we talk now very much about the war on crime and the war on drugs and the, how that kind of fed into the age of mass incarceration which Ray and I were talking about the new Jim Crow Michelle Alexander's book which obviously uh, fed a lot of my thinking into this book. 
and is really an incredible document of, of how the criminal justice have changed, but they were, they were, they saw these changes within the criminal justice system, within the prison system. I remember Ricky telling me about how he kept noticing how the guys who kept coming through the door were younger and younger and they kept coming longer and they were staying for longer. And even, like you mentioned, that when you would go to the parole board, uh, when Ricky, in the book I talk about a time when Ricky had gone to the parole board and again he said, you know, they were like, we want you to express contrition for what you've done. And he said, well, I didn't do this. And so they, 10 more years, which is an incredibly debilitating thing to think about. But they, that was a time where the laws had been enhanced, where those, they would call them super flops uh, in the prison. And those were these extended parole, you know, they would tag another 10 years really willy-nilly onto your case. Mm -hmm. um, and these men went through those changes and saw the prison system change to what we have today, like I mentioned, in this age of mass incarceration. So throughout this time, how do they feel about Edward Vernon? Um, because do they, do they know that at the time that this is the 12 year old boy? I mean, he, they, he testified, so they right. do know. So yeah. how do they how do they feel about him? Do they, you know, are they uh, like you know we forgive him, or are they really really angry about what what he did? Well, I every single one of these uh, remarkable men have told me that you know you can't live with that hatred uh, okay. for decades. You know, it would it would disfigure your person, I think, and who you are. And so each of them, in their own way, came over that. Uh, anger. I mean, obviously, they're ang you would be angry at Edward Vernon. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was reporting the story, the first story in particular, I was angry at Edward Vernon. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was like the kind of the villain in my mind of this story uh, in, when I was doing the first reporting. And of, of course, the story was more complicated because he had been coerced and things like that. And I think all three of the guys came to the point and recognized that this was more of a systemic issue. Mm -hmm that there was much more involved than just a little boy lying. There were adults in the room, public officials, police prosecutors who contributed to this and, and caused it. So Edward Vernon, uh, he was a 12 year old uh, again, who, who said that he saw those three commit the crime, get away. Um, what, is, what was his life like dealing with the, the, the guilt and the burden knowing that I, I sent these guys to prison, almost had them killed. Um, you, you caught up with him, obviously, and talked to him um, about the case. What did you learn from him, and kind of how, how did he struggle with the fact that um, he definitely uh, was the main reason why they went to jail? This, I mean, this was definitely a defining moment in his life, in a negative as well. He had talked about how he very much spiraled into drugs and drug addiction for years because of the guilt and the fear that he felt over this situation. Uh, there's a moment in the book, which is incredibly remarkable, but there's a moment in the book where, I feel bad saying it's remarkable because it's my book, but <laughs> there's a moment in the story, I should say, that's incredibly remarkable in 2002 where Edward had just, just turned his life around. He was just sober. He had just gone through the steps. He realized, you know, in the language of recovery that these were triggers, in particular this guilt and shame in this case was a trigger. And he was working at the city mission, and who walks through the door but uh, Wiley Bridgman, because he had just been paroled, which is an incredible uh, you know, chance occurrence. Uh, and, there's, and I know that all three of the men, and I, I have this question as well, is that Edward could have come forward then in 2002. He could have said, because him and Wiley interacted. Wiley, he, he came forward and told Wiley who he was. Wiley seemed to have recognized him as well, came forward, told Wiley who he was. Wiley was like, we got to go call the press. We got to we got to tell people about this, and Edward wouldn't do it. His explanation for that to me years later was that his sobriety was such a, 
uh, fragile thing at that point, he knew it would send him back down a hole. Now, I think that's for everyone's judgment whether that was the right call or the moral call. You know, I, I, I leave that for other people to decide. But he definitely carried the shame, a double shame because of that situation in 2002 as well. And I think that that's what in 2014 helped prod him to admit what he had done. But I also feel that he would have easily um, died, you know, mm. without ever revealing this secret. Uh, I think there was a lot of prompting. I think that scenes reporting by bringing this case back up really helped nudge him in the way. Um, I think he kind of realized that there was no getting away from it at this point. The Ohio Innocence Project was knocking on his door all the time, and they did incredible work after the original scene story came mm. out. But you know, I think I think he could have let this let this go, and these men would still be in prison, um, unfortunately. So I think he needed needed those prod that prodding to get mm. us where we got to. What 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 kind of took, uh, put it over the top for him to to finally speak up about it? I think the uh, the Ohio Innocence Project was was really knocking on his door. Just the aggressiveness of the investigation. And yeah, and like I that. think he realized then he he was also sick. Uh, he, he has health problems and. Some people close to him had indicated, look, you know, if you die and these guys are still in prison, mm. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a horrible moral failing on your part. And he had become very religious, and his religion was a very big part of his life. Obviously, there's a right thing to do in this situation, and I think uh, he had to be notified of that mm. and told about it. But then, you know, the Ohio Innocence Project, uh, which did incredible work for Ricky Jackson, you know, they were very much on his case about it, and they were very, you know, they weren't going to let it go. So I started by saying that I was jealous of you because you got this incredible story, just you know, uh, you know, by a tip. Um, so I, I'm wondering, um, when you did the reporting, uh, you released a story. Um, what happened? They didn't obviously they didn't immediately get released. So talk about that because I know you yeah. were you were probably thinking that. As, as I'm, I'm sure as a reporter, you're like I did all this work. I'm like, oh man, this is about to be my big break. And then, <laughs> then it didn't happen. Right. So and then so talk about that and also talk about how the Ohio Innocence Project stepped in right. and kind of gave us some new life. So I um, right. So the story comes out in 2011, and you know it was maybe some naivete on my part, but I thought that you know judges' gavels would start swinging and, and jail doors would open, and that uh, <laughs> the lawyer laughs over there. <laughs> uh, that 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 these guys, that justice would be done because of this story in a local alt-weekly that's ads are strip clubs and bars. Uh, <laughs> no offense, but uh, uh, so I thought, yeah, I thought that, that something would happen. And, what, and it wasn't an ego thing, it was really because, uh, I'm trying not to get misty, thinking misty-eyed, but it was because I'd gotten very, very close to Kwame. I'd realized the real stakes involved with this. And I felt that I let him down, really. I felt that this story hadn't done what we both deep in our hearts, wanted it to do. And I got really, you know, I was like, maybe, because I also thought that the story, you know, was very, very in-depth. I thought it was the best work as a reporter I could do. And I felt, you know, that I'd failed, basically. Mm. And I felt that I'd failed Kwame and the three guys, and, or the two other guys. And uh, eventually I just got mad at Cleveland. I just turned around and was like, well, Cleveland, you know, it's like no one cares here. It's, it's just a, you know, there's such apathy in this town that that's why, and there's no way to like crack through this apathy. And I ended up moving. I pulled a LeBron. I moved to Miami. Uh, <laughs> took your talents. Yeah, I took my talents to South Beach, literally. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of never thought I'd come back to Cleveland. And Kwame and I would talk, and I, and I know we both felt 
fairly defeated by how the story didn't work out. And, and, and I, like I said, I felt very much that I'd, I'd let him down. So unbeknownst to me, though, the, the Ohio Innocence Project had read the story. And they had had a file open on Ricky's case. And I remember later I would talk to uh, some former Ohio Innocence Project students who had worked on the case. And they were called, you know, always fielding calls from Kwame. He was always calling about the case, always seeing if they could move it forward. And they had kept a file open. But Innocence Projects, kind of by design and legacy, are very much focused on DNA cases. Uh, it's kind of policy-wise where their laser focus is. And there was no DNA in this case. So they originally had looked, there was a cup that vanished in this case that was part of, that the suspects had had, and they were, they reinvigorated efforts to try to find this cup, but we're talking decades later, that cup was in a waste paper basket, probably the week after the crime, it just disappeared. So, you know, they had been focused on DNA, they read my story, and they saw that Edward Vernon was the key here. Edward Vernon's testimony was the key. And so I'm moping down in South Beach, although not moping much, but moping. Uh, and they redoubled their efforts, and they started this press on Edward. And then one day out of the blue uh, in Miami in 2014, I got a phone call from an attorney at the Ohio Innocence Project named Brian Howe, who called and said, you know, uh, Ed's recanted, and we're going to file on Ricky's case. And I was like, oh my God, I gotta tell Kwame. He's like, no, he's like, you can't tell anyone. You gotta, this has to be off the record. You can't tell anyone yet. You can't tell anyone yet. And I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I gotta tell him. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, you gotta, you gotta hold out. And so I held out until they actually filed the filing, the motion for new trial on behalf of Ricky Jackson. And uh, then I, I called Kwame up and, and delivered the news. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was you know, a great moment in my life. It was an honor to be able to make that phone call. Yeah, I was gonna, gonna ask, I mean, that, is I'm sure probably the one of the greatest moments of your life outside of marrying your wife right here, right? Yeah, I gotta say it, yeah. Thank I'm trying you. to throw you a come on, man. I'm trying, trying to give it yeah. to you right here. But but what what was that like though? Because I, I, I can't even imagine as a reporter getting someone out of jail who who just spent almost the ent their entire life there. So just kind of give me some insight. Well, it really uh, it turned me a 180 on on this work. I mean, it really turned me from being very much like, well, I don't know, you know, we spend so much time on reporting and these stories, does anybody care? To 100% the opposite, because I've, I've seen that, I've seen that effect, and that's why I am so, you know, I'm a, I'm a great evangelist for the, the work we do, um, despite the tweets we all wake up to in the morning. <laughs> but uh, I am very much, uh, you know, this is so, so important work. Uh, so many people's stories are out there waiting to be told, and, and you know, I'm just, I'm a big journalism nerd and, and, and it's really changed the course of my life in t terms of, you know, if, if nothing had happened with this case, I don't know, I might have, my parents kept telling me I should go to law school for years and maybe I would have ended up in law school. But uh, it, it, this reversal, the way that this case played out turned me into a very true believer. So I wanted to ask one more question because obviously Kwame Osamu um, and the two others, uh, and I keep saying Kwame because he's right there smiling <laughs> as, as, as you know, this big smile, but he's black and you're white. And of course, Cleveland Very. is a predominantly, <laughs> predominantly uh, uh, you know, black area to some degree with a lot of mm -hmm. uh, uh, black issues. Just wanna talk to you about just how did that impact your reporting and also how did that open your eyes to, yeah. uh, to the criminal justice system and the, and the, the issues uh, with the system? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a great point and it's, it's absolutely true 
that it really opened my eyes in a way. And I'll tell you why. When I first met Kwame, I said that we talked and you know, I believed him and he seemed very believable and I was excited to get into his case. Excuse me, but there's maybe like one, one percent of me that was holding back fully believing him. And that was because in my mind I thought, well, the criminal justice system has to have these safety nets or guardrails or, or things in place where someone really couldn't be wrongfully convicted and spend decades in prison. I figured that the criminal justice system must have some type of mechanism that would correct itself along the way. And reporting that first story in 2011, I saw that that was stupid of me to think that. And it's absolutely the complete opposite. And eventually I realized that the reason I had that false idea about the effectiveness of the criminal justice system had everything to do with who I was being you know, a white suburban kid who had never been on the wrong side of the criminal justice system at all, or no one I'd loved been on the wrong side of the criminal justice system. And so that was really a, a shocking moment to me and it really made me rethink how you do this work and how you are empathetic and how, you know, I think empathy is the real key to this type of storytelling, this type of reporting. And I think you have to think about your own privilege and perspectives. I, I, there's a line in the book about how, you know, we're responsible for our perspectives in the world, you know, what we see there and what we don't see. And I think that's something that this case and reporting on issues of African-American communities has really uh, hammered home to me. And you know, recognizing that if I want to be an advocate, if I want to tell these stories, I have to be conscious of who I am and where I'm coming from about it. So that's probably, and I think that's, you know, I hope that I honor those stories and those people by keeping that in mind. Thank you, Kyle. Thank that, you. Was, that was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive at the City Club, and today we're enjoying a forum with Kyle Swenson, a reporter for the Washington Post and author of Good Kids, Bad City, a story of race and wrongful conviction in America. He's also formerly a reporter at Cleveland Scene Magazine. He's in conversation with WKYC TV reporter Ray Strickland. We're about to begin our audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, those of you joining us via our, our radio broadcast or our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will try to work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Urimilo Orasanya. May we have our first question, please? Good afternoon. Thank you for your, uh, your story. Um, Good Kids, Bad City. There's so much in that title. Talk about the bad city part, because I know folks around here are making all kinds of assumptions about what you meant. Uh -huh. And uh, just so tell everything that goes into the bad city part of your title. Sure. Uh, so the title, and um, so the title is a is an allusion, a direct reference to a Kendrick Lamar album called Good Kids, Mad City that came out in 2012. And the reason it's there, it's for a couple reasons, but one of the reasons it's there is because in one of the songs, which is actually in the, f the quoted in the front of the book, there's a line about how um, the narrator in the song feels like every, uh, I think the whole city go against me is the, is the line. And I had remembered hearing an echo of that when I had first got to know Kwame Ajamu and he had told me that, you know, it was very hard for him to separate what had been done to him from the city of Cleveland itself. And so the good kids, more specifically, obviously, are the, are, the, are the kids of the title and the city. Uh, it's not meant to be necessarily Cleveland, but the city as we think about as the state in this, you know, the prosecutors, the official 
city, I think, is obviously the, were obviously the bad actors in this situation. And so that's what that's specifically supposed to mean. Um, I know people will take it as Cleveland in general, but I do love Cleveland. I should get that on the record in public, but uh, I, 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 do, I, I'm, I do love Cleveland and believe in the city, and I think the book reflects parts of that as well. Because for one of the reasons is I think Cleveland has a very uh, great civic, or history of civic spirit, and I think we've drifted away from that in recent decades, and I think that this book tracks those drifts in a way. Um, first, I would like to say thank you to Mr. Ajamu for being here with us today and for relentlessly standing for the truth. Um, I think your willingness to continue to pursue the truth and justice has really uh, set a precedent for so many people across the country. Um, I would like to follow up, Mr. Swenson, with this idea that the police wanted it to be these three young men. And my question is, did you get a sense of why these young men, when you knew that they had tips about who likely had actually committed the crime, why these young men as opposed to the people that uh, people believed actually did commit this crime? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's tough because by the time you know, we started looking into the case, Obviously, the detectives most directly involved had passed away, so they weren't really there, unfortunately, to answer questions or answer for what they did here. But my sense was that it was just kind of served up to them easy on a plate because of Ed Vernon. You know, it was very easy for them to close this file and move it off their desk. I mean, there was a moment, a really remarkable moment, in one of the trials where the FBI tip comes up. And even the judge, and it was Wiley Bridgman's second trial, his retrial in 1977, the judge asks the lead detective on this case, he says, well, you know, what, ha what was, why didn't you follow up on this tip? And the, the detective said, well, it was, a, it was an untrustworthy uh, informant. And then about three exchanges later, the detective's like, well, we actually didn't know who the informant was. And the judge stopped and was like, wait, you didn't know, you just said it was untrustworthy. How did you know it was untrustworthy if you didn't know who it was? And the cop was like, we just, I forget what he says, it's in the book, but it was a non-answer answer. But it, that type of uh, cynicism, I think, was very prevalent in the police department at the time. And um, you know, I think it's very indicative of law enforcement uh, in the country at the time. You spend a lot of uh, content in the book, not just talking about the story of these three men, but also weaving in uh, the history of the city of Cleveland and criminal justice. And, and the developments of the city. And one of the most interesting and really encouraging things to me in reading the book was you talked in the beginning about how Cleveland once had this proud history of integration as maybe the most integrated large American city before waves of European immigrants hit and, and things really changed. So could you talk more about that and maybe direct us to some of your source material for that because that was really encouraging and, and inspiring. Yeah, uh, no, and you're absolutely right. And that was incredibly uh, interesting for me to read about because uh, I had no idea about that. But yeah, in the so uh, from the 1830s up until maybe the 19, you know, the early 1900, uh, the early 1910s, uh, Cleveland had a really, uh, really proud reputation of being integra integrated. Uh, you know, all of the restaurants were integrated, uh, the schools were integrated. The businesses were integrated. There was not this uh, segregation that you see take hold later in the 20th century. And uh, you're absolutely right that it was kind of the influx of 
you know, basically when the city's population exploded for a lot of reasons, there was this, this segregation kind of took hold within the city. But it was very proud. I mean, the abolitionist movement was very strong here. There were abolitionist newspapers. There was actually, I mean, even going into the 1870s when the streetcars, a, a private streetcar operator had tried to uh, not allow African Americans on streetcars, and the city itself integrated a, or instigated a lawsuit, a civil rights lawsuit against that, and, and won in Cleveland courts. Uh, so the, his, there's, um, there's a, a, a book, and I'm gonna forget the title. <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful book called, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's important. It was. It was. It's an academic uh, book, and it's really. I think it should be required reading if you want to understand Cleveland. I believe it was. Sorry, I don't want to take up too much time. But. Uh, uh oh. Oh yes. Okay. So it's Kenneth L. Cusmer, A Ghetto Takes Shape: Black Cleveland, 1870 to 1930, which is really an incredible. Uh, study of these issues, and uh, it's really a great book to read if you're interested. Thank you very much for your journalism and uh, to also sharing in the young lady's acknowledgement of Kwame and the other two uh, victims of this gross injustice. Uh, there's a similar case that uh, came out in reporting and uh, was reversed uh, involving a unjustified incarceration of Michael Green. Oh yeah. And I wondered if uh, you obviously you're familiar with it. I wondered if you could say a few words about that for the others to learn about that, so that uh, this case tragically was not isolated and, and alone. But one of the uh, powerful similarities is that uh, it sounds like Mr. Vernon didn't didn't exactly have an epiphany uh, that he should come and tell the truth, but he, he did tell the truth. And in the Michael Green case, there were, uh, the, the individual that committed the crime uh, kept reading about Michael Green at so much that uh, he actually confessed to a circle of peers, I believe, I remember, at the, at the uh, city mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I just wondered if you could share a little bit of that and also a word or two more about the the police department. Did you try to get a um, an official statement from the police? You said that uh, some of the detectives were deceased, but I wondered if if you explored uh, in retrospect uh, the actions of the police. Thank you. So the, to the second point, um, I this case is wrapped up in a civil litigation at this point, so the city won't comment on anything. And, and very much the attitude is, is it's old news and it was a different era of policing and it was different. The Michael Green case, which I, I write about a little bit, I briefly revisit it, that, and I don't remember the facts right off the top of my head because there's actually a, f there's a, a few Michael Green exonerations, the name Michael Green, uh, and they're different cases, but uh, I believe you know, that was a rape case, if I'm not, yeah, it was a rape case. Uh, I believe the, the plain dealer had done extensive coverage on it. Um, and it was a relatively recent case. And I guess w one of my big fears is that this would be read as old history, that people would assume that cases like this don't happen at all anymore. But it's not, not true at all. In fact, I mean, uh, Ruel Saylor is here. Is he here? Where's Ruel? Is he still here? There he is, yeah. Ruel Saylor, who uh, I had written about a story as well, uh, he was wrongfully 
convicted in 2003 or two? Three, Three yeah, and he spent 15 years incarcerated and was released last year. So, and that was a Cleveland, city of Cleveland case, yeah. And so that shows you that, that these cases are not old, they're, they're still happening. Uh, it's very much a, a continuous problem with, with the police and prosecution uh, here. And I just assume, I mean, if you think, they say between one, this is very academic, but one in five of all convictions are wrongful convictions, and that's just an estimate, but if just by those numbers, if you think about American convictions, that's an incredible number of convictions. I'm sorry, one in five percent, excuse me. Yeah, so, thanks. <laughs> but so that, one in five, that means one in five percent of the convictions at the courthouse right now are wrongful convictions, if you think about it. Um, so. I just wanted to say how thankful we are for the work that you do and how important it is. Um, over the years, we had reached out to so many news and media outlets, reporters, anyone who would listen, and you finally did. Well, not finally, but <clears throat> the first time I reached out to you, you were. You took interest and you believed, you know, Ruel's story. Right. Um, so this how is Amy, this is Amy? Yeah. She's Ruel's fiance, and she contacted me when he was incarcerated and uh, was the one who was pushing me to look into the case and yeah. did very much what Kwame did for the case in the book. But yeah, and and same thing when after your article came out, we thought that it would just, you know, everything would just start falling into place and he would come right home. But it took almost two years, you know, and with the help of the Ohio Innocence Project, but, um, you know, how, how important is it for someone to <clears throat> notice these stories and take interest, really look into them, believe what's happening, because everyone isn't lying. I mean, there's so many situations out there like these guys, you know, um, it's really important what you're doing, so, you know, for, for other journalists to, you know, take the time and listen or look into these stories, it's, it's really important. What do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, and I think you know, there's great journalists in this room who, who uh, like Ray said, or have email addresses that are out there <laughs> waiting, for, for waiting for the tips. But uh, you know, these, are, these are tough stories. I think historically, wrongful conviction stories have been tough stories to get editors to green light, because they're very complicated, they take a very long time, and, they're often very, very involved in terms of the storytelling. And, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Cleveland Scene, and particularly, particularly my editor at the time, Eric Burnett, who's no longer at the scene. But uh, I remember pitching uh, Kwame's story, and he was just like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Sounds great. Um, I don't know that I would have gotten that uh, type of encouragement and green light from other uh, reporters. But I do feel, though, that we're seeing more and more really great reporting about issues of innocence in cases like this. You know, everyone knows Serial, but there's been great reporting from places from the Washington Post to, to BuzzFeed to, to the Marshall Project. And I think that's a lot because there's a growing consensus or at least a consciousness in, in the country that there are issues with our criminal justice system and that it's not perfect. You know, that epiphany that I had about it, I think more and more people are having that we deal with a system that is, is, is broken. I first want to echo the uh, gratitude that I think we all have for Mr. Ajamu's presence here and for his you know, continuing spirit of hope that led to us being here today. Um, congratulations, Kyle, on a beautiful artistic rendering of this amazing story, and thank you for being uh, part of the mechanism that makes the criminal justice system not go off the rails. You are the guardrail, uh, uh -huh. not only once 
but but more than once, and, and I hope you continue to have that uh, as part of your career. Since uh, Prosecutor McGinty walked into the courtroom and, and announced that the, the charges would be dismissed and they wouldn't be pursuing uh, any further charges against the in wrongfully incarcerated individuals. Give away the ending. Has anything? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Has, spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. Has anything happened? Has the prosecutor's office, has the Cleveland police done anything to find the people who actually committed this crime? No. No. Uh, no. Um, in fact, it was interesting because uh, when Kwame were on the radio yesterday, for years I had tried to find uh, Mr. Frank's family or any family he'd had involved, and it didn't seem like there was anyone left. And then yesterday we were on the radio, pretty remarkable phone call came from a woman who uh, was, Mr. Mr. Franks was her step-uncle, and so she was a, a distant relation. But remember, she, she came on the line and said that, and my head exploded. But then she said, you know, I'm so happy that these men are out, and my head exploded again. Uh, because it was just like wonderful that she could uh, take some satisfaction in knowing that, that this injustice that was done on top of the injustice of the murder had been fixed. But the murder itself has never been solved, and I don't think, I mean, it would be very difficult at this point, I think, to solve it, unfortunately. Hi, I really appreciated everything you've done, and what a great story. Um, my question is something that hasn't been touched on, and that is um, the attorney and the representation for the three men who were wrongfully convicted. Um, for example, you spoke of different loopholes and different inconsistencies in both the story and the detective's testimony. Um, who represented them, or what do you know about the, their attorneys? Because, again, that, that is such a, a bias in our justice system if you don't have an attorney who can really fight for you. Could you speak to that, please? Absolutely. Uh, the book goes into pretty in-depth about the attorneys in this case. Uh, some of them were better than others. Kwame's attorney, I know that he had great frustrations with uh, when, he was, when he was 17. You know, you're 17, this guy's supposed to be in the corner for you. Some of the attorneys in the other cases, I think, were, were fairly effective in pointing out certain inconsistencies. I think also what really played into this was that this is a 12-year-old kid. He looks scared up there. I think it was easy for the jury to have sympathy for him and, and, and to believe him. And I, a really scary thing is that sometimes juries just get it wrong. And I think that that's what, ha what ha absolutely happened here. But their defense attorneys didn't help. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Kyle Swenson, reporter for the Washington Post and formerly of Cleveland Scene Magazine, author of Good Kids, Bad City, which is, of course, what we've been discussing. That's a story of race and wrongful conviction in America. He's been in conversation with WKYC-TV reporter Ray Strickland. Our forum today is sponsored by Cleveland Scene Magazine. We're delighted to have publisher Andrew Zellman and his guests with us today. Thank you very much for your support of City Club programming. Mr. Swenson also appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their continued support through that public grant. Give yourselves a round of applause. Also, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Breakthrough Schools, the Cuyahoga County Public Defender. 
the family and friends of Kyle Swenson, Greater Cleveland Congregations, and John Carroll University and University School. Lastly, we also welcome students from A.J. Rickoff School, John Adams High School, and Lincoln West Science and Health. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from Key Bank and the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from donors you'll find listed in our program today. We thank all of you for being a part of this today. The sale of Mr. Swenson's book, Good Kids, Bad City, is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you very much, Mr. Swenson and Mr. Strickland. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.